This is a Piccolo podcast production. For the season two finale of Fairground Fuckups, we go to Australia's theme park capital, the Gold Coast in Queensland on the eastern seaboard. I'm Holly Mitchell. You're listening to Fairground Fuckups. It could have been avoided. In the end, those were the words that rang loudest in everyone's ears. It could have, should have been avoided. In the words of one of the paramedics who attended the scene and lives forever with the emotional scars of the horror he saw that day, almost a generation of one family has been wiped out. Onlookers were traumatised, loved ones devastated, business owners disgraced, all this and far worse. The tragedy that claimed the lives of four Australian holidaymakers on the Queensland Gold Coast was, when all is said and done, a tragedy that was easily preventable. To understand how the incident occurred and all the factors that contributed to the disaster, it is necessary to go back to the beginning, to the very beginning, to the origins of what is unquestionably Australia's premier amusement park, to the prevailing culture that guided its construction and operation, and to the dream of an entrepreneur who wanted to bring joy to the whole family. From the very beginning, it may be possible to see how exactly such a terrible tragedy was allowed to happen, and why, years later, very little seems to have changed. The dream belonged to John Longhurst, In 1968, the self-made millionaire took his young family on their own holiday and ended up at the Taronga Park Zoo in Sydney, another of Australia's premier attractions. Leaving the park with his young children in tow that day, however, Longhurst was not impressed. A man possessed not only with an uncanny knack for good business, but an unflappable work ethic, Longhurst considered the paltry display of caged animals and thought quite simply, I could do better. Long fascinated by the American icon Walt Disney, John Longhurst reflected that what Australia needed was something like what the United States had in Disneyland. He was the first to tell others that Australia could never sustain such a grand kingdom as that, having neither the potential nor the population, but something like it, something uniquely Australian that embodied the description of Disneyland that had captured Longhurst's imagination. A real dream world. The first thing he did was copyright the name. The next was to purchase 210 acres of undeveloped land in the booming state of Queensland. Over the next seven years, Longhurst would attract business partners, recruit international designers and architects, some of who were involved in the creation of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Not content with riding the desk on the project, Longhurst was out in those fields from the early days, operating excavators, directing work teams and contributing in a very hands-on way to the realisation of his venture. Working with the essence of Australian culture, Longhurst envisioned a theme park that reflected Australia's colonial roots. Buildings would be constructed in the Victorian pioneer style, while among the first rides were a steam-powered locomotive, 
still in operation to this day, and a paddle barge to travel the 800-metre river that he had personally spent two and a half years digging, single-handedly, if you believe some accounts. During these years, the Longhurst family watched their father work relentlessly in pursuit of his vision. And at that time, the driving ethos of Dreamworld was simple. It was to be perfect. Longhurst would not tolerate cut corners, and he would make no compromises. Like the American kingdoms from which he drew inspiration, he and everyone employed in the construction would be completely devoted to its integrity. As the park became more and more of a reality, the pride felt by those involved became an almost infectious force throughout the nation. Here, finally, was an authentically Australian experience. Not a copy-and-pasted funland like Luna Park or the overly familiar travelling carnival. Dreamworld bore the history and image of a young nation. And while Longhurst may have been too humble to honestly compare his theme park with his inspiration overseas, the media had no problems at all declaring it to be Australia's answer to Disneyland. Dreamworld was the perfect fusion of adventure park and celebration of history. Designed like an old gold mining town where the buildings stood as tourist attractions, Longhurst was canny enough to plan for the most important thing, the potential to grow. Opening in 1981 with just five attractions, the surrounding land was marked in segments for future development. Through the 1980s, a new theme section was opened almost every year. This gave the hundreds and thousands of patrons who had been through the gates in that first year to return annually in order to experience the newest thrills the park was offering. The longest roller coaster in the Southern Hemisphere, water slides and pools for hot days, a chairlift to carry the family over the heads of the people on the ground, offering magnificent views of the countryside. Street theatre or film shown in IMAX, a ride underground in mining carts, and of course, the Thunder River Rapids. Each new endeavour was a testament to John Longhurst's standards of perfection and cemented Dreamworld as the largest and greatest of all parks in Australia. In truth, nothing else could even come close to matching the sheer scale of Dreamworld. Her closest competitor, Australia's Wonderland, 1,000 kilometres away in Sydney, New South Wales, may have outmatched Dreamworld in size, but couldn't come close in terms of content. Wonderland operated for 18 years, closing its gates for the final time in 2004. The tales of mismanagement for that Sydney landmark are a story in itself. But in the end, it only served to highlight the supreme triumph of the Gold Coast's main attraction. For eight years, Longhurst and his partners thrived, building not just an adventure park, but happy family memories for millions of Australians. His dream finally realised Longhurst felt there was nothing left to contribute, and in 1989, sold his interest to Dreamco. Though few common punters would have ever realised, it was the end of an era for Dreamworld, not just a parting of ways with the founder, a man who had literally built the place with his own hands, but also the end of the work ethic that drove it for those first years, and the standards that guided its operation. It would take some time to become apparent, but it was the end of the perfect park. Dreamworld's new operators ran the park for a staggering 12 months before they found the company going into administration. The reasons for this predated the purchase of Dreamworld, 
but meant that the first few years they held the park were marred by administrative problems. Millions of dollars were invested into the theme park in desperate efforts to dramatically increase the revenue, while intense campaigns in advertising and media reached out to pull the families in year-round. It worked, kind of. Dreamworld avoided being put through liquidation after five years of struggle. Five years in which the only question anyone involved with operating and overseeing the park were asking was, how do we get more people through the gates? Executives' attention was entirely occupied with advertisers. Park management was frantically trying to implement cost-cutting measures imposed by panicked owners while trying to keep an endless stream of media experts, accountants, investors and corporate overlords informed on a daily basis as to any changes in the park's bottom line. If an attraction wasn't making profit, how could its cost be reduced? More often than not, this meant reducing staff required to operate, but it also meant cutting back on staff hours in general, skipping some of the tedious and time-wasting processes that were a glaring red figure on the account books. Little things like routine maintenance, safety inspection, and comprehensive staff training, that sort of thing. Dreamworld survived, but Dreamco did not. Even though they succeeded in keeping the gates to the adventure park open, they were unable to hold onto it as a corporate asset as the company began to collapse. Once more with their backs against the wall, the park's corporate management looked for someone to purchase Australia's number one tourist destination. Someone wealthy enough to pay, perhaps not enough to save Dreamco, but certainly enough to pad the coffers so that the executive board could take some fat severance packages on their way out the door. Up to the plate stepped Kwapek Long. A glance at the history of this Singaporean businessman and you'll see the word tycoon used an awful lot as a descriptor. Having made a name for himself over a number of years building up major transport businesses in the Asia-Pacific region, Long turned his eyes to real estate and tourism. This tycoon had an eye for potential, and he knew value when he saw it. He purchased Dreamworld for $85 million, with plans not just for developing the theme park attractions, but for installing a series of hotels as well. If the transition from the park's original ownership to Dreamco had been poorly handled, as far as Dreamworld staff were concerned, the change of hands in 1994 did not go much better. Once again... The development of new sites and new events and attractions was the primary focus of management. Those rides that had been present at the park's opening and those that premiered throughout the 1980s were largely ignored by the new owners. As long as they continued to run at a negligible expense, there was no real need to give them any particular attention. By this time in the park's history, there had been no major incidents or accidents No hospitalisations as a result of a ride breaking down and no food poisoning from the cafeterias. Apart from the occasional case of heatstroke, Dreamworld had a stellar record for public health and safety. Why would there be any reason for concern? In the hands of Kwapek Long, Dreamworld once again expanded its borders and spent much of its energy during the mid-90s chasing that most trendy of descriptors for that era. Extreme. After introducing a live tiger exhibit, Long's company formed a partnership with Swiss manufacturer Intamin with one design directive, make them the biggest, make them the fastest. 
Long's vision of luxury hotels on the site never really made it to construction. But some of the new attractions built on his watch set world records for height and speed. During these years, Dreamworld shifted their advertising strategy from appealing to a sense of wholesome Australian family fun to focus more on the thrills and excitement that groups of young people could experience on a day away from their parents. More than a step removed from the days of John Longhurst, Dreamworld was determined to forge a new identity, a vastly more profitable identity. In the meantime, the classic rides endured. The steam train, now known as the Dreamworld Express, continued its daily ride. The water slides and the Blue Lagoon water park still attracted massive crowds in the summer months. And over in the Gold Rush country, families could still enjoy the thrills and literal spills getting soaked on the Thunder River Rapids. An icon of the park and front and centre in its advertising since 1986, the Thunder River Rapids was a simulated rafting experience. A family or group of six would take seats in an oversized circular raft, harnessed, of course, for complete safety. Pulled along the loading platform by a conveyor belt, the raft was then launched into the artificial river created for the ride, with a strong current generated by a complex system of pumps. The delighted adventurers would then follow the river through caves and mountain gullies, being tossed up and down by jets of water that spurted skyward. The river carried the riders in a loop before depositing the raft back onto the conveyor belt at the lowest point of the ride and dragging them back to the station to dismount. The Thunder River Rapids ride was almost as enjoyable to watch as it was to experience. All the adrenaline of whitewater rafting with none of the risks to life and limb. The rafts could not capsize and patrons could not fall out into the water. The ride was foolproof. It was simple to operate as well, requiring a minimum of supervision from staff and minimal use of controls. So long as the pump system was working, a monkey could be left in charge. And so Dreamworld pushed forward. 1998 saw yet another change in owners, with Long selling the park to the Australian company Macquarie Leisure Trust Group, known today as the Ardent Group. This time, there were few financial concerns on the part of the new administration and the transition allowed park management and staff to carry on business as usual. Business as usual included a partnership with one of Australia's free-to-air television stations, Channel 10, which in the past brought the Simpsons characters to oversized life on Dreamworld grounds. With Ardent calling the shots, Dreamworld became the home, literally, of the Australian version of Big Brother. The filming of the series took place entirely on Dreamworld property and attracted crowds to a greater extent than ever. Patrons were paying entry fees to the park just for a chance to get close to the Big Brother house. In a pinch, it seemed, Dreamworld could double as a reasonable film studio and alternate revenue streams filled the eyes of the ardent board. With so much new territory to explore, bold new horizons to pursue little thought was given to the legacy of years gone by. In 2003, the Thunderbolt, the sixth ride ever built for Dreamworld, was closed permanently and sold for scrap. Of course, it's impossible to expect that such constructions of steel can be maintained indefinitely, and for 20 years the Thunderbolt had served the park well. 
But the closing of the ride gave insight into the growing attitude of DreamWorld's owners and managers. No time was wasted when the Thunderbolt's hour was up. Some sentimental custodian placed a car and a segment of the track into storage, and the rest was disposed of quickly. What was the sense in sinking a fortune into restoring or reviving failing attractions? And what did all of this mean for the Thunder River Rapids? As one of the most recognisable attractions of Dreamworld, featuring heavily in advertisements for decades, it was unthinkable to have it out of commission for any length of time. Given the extraordinary difficulty and expense involved in constructing water-based rides in general, especially one with an artificial river, the Arden Group couldn't justify building a new one. When as far as anyone knew, the Thunder River Rapids was just fine. Of course, there was essential maintenance that had to take place from time to time. Pump systems like the one in use here could not operate forever. And so occasionally the experts would need to take a look at the ride. Maintenance staff at the park, however, were proud of their ability to turn their hand to just about anything. And from time to time, they were able to resolve minor pump issues in-house. This saved a significant fee since no outside contractors needed to be called in. As an added bonus, playing around with a pump system led to the discovery of a few ways in which the ride could be made more thrilling, increasing the speed of the current or the height of the jet of water. Strictly speaking, following any such alteration of these systems, Dreamworld were required to have a government body inspect and approve the changes. But what people didn't know wouldn't hurt them. The ride also experienced its fair share of water damage, completely unavoidable given its nature. When a raft began to show signs of rust or mould, it was necessary to take it out of service and restore it to working condition, or purchase a new one. But what about aspects of the ride that couldn't be seen by the public? Parts of the structure built from timber to form the frame of the rapids and the caves, or to hide the moving parts of machinery that hauled the rafts through the station. The conveyor belt, for example, was nestled among closely packed wooden sleepers that hid the mechanism from the public eye and also meant that should someone fall from the platform or out of the raft, they would land on something solid before being pulled under the water and into the machinery below. Over the years, these sleepers began to wear and rot, as wood does when it's exposed to significant levels of water. A collapsed sleeper could cause serious damage to the machine, and there was no question about leaving them in place. As they fell apart, they were removed from their place on the conveyor belt and were not replaced. Installing new wooden sleepers was an expense of time and money, requiring the ride to be out of operation for longer than was acceptable to ensure the fitting was secure. And in 30 years, not a single accident had occurred on the Thunder River Rapids, not one. There is such thing as being too careful, is there not? This, possibly more than any other factor, was a sign of just how far from the vision of John Longhurst's dream world had come. The park had grown exponentially and sought new horizons faster than anyone could have imagined. What did it matter if, behind the scenes, things were not always perfect? This was the condition of Dreamworld on the 25th of October 2016, a day like any other at the park. On this day, Cindy Lowe, Kate Goodchild, her brother Luke Dorset, and his partner Ruzi Aragi came through the gates with their family. 
A day of fun and excitement in one another's company was the plan. With two young nephews in tow, it was this plan that brought them to the queue for the Thunder River Rapids to join the patrons patiently waiting their turn, just like any other day at Dreamworld. The one notable change on this day was that a new staff member was starting her first shift as an attendant on the Thunder River Rapids. No one had time to train her yet. The stage was set for disaster. The story concludes next week. I'm Holly Mitchell, and this is Fairground Fuck Ups. 